Allow me now to lead us in prayer. We give thanks, O Lord, that we can come before you in prayer, all because of the work of your Son, Jesus. He paid for our sin. He reconciled us to you. And he called us to pray in his name because he is our mediator. And so we praise you that we can choose not to be anxious about anything, but in everything to make our prayer requests laid before you. And in return, you fill our minds and guard our hearts with peace in Christ Jesus. And so as the present crisis, as the present pandemic threatens everything that we sometimes may hold dear, our loved ones, our jobs, our possessions, our wealth, and even on our own dear life. We ask, Lord, that you will guard our hearts and our minds with the assurance that you've ordained all things that come to pass and that you've only but good purposes for your people to make us more and more like your Son, Jesus. And so help us to respond in ways that bring people closer to faith seeing our unshakable faith in you, seeing our good works that direct glory to you, our growth in Christlikeness each day, the graceful words that we speak and actions that we do, despite trying times, whether working at home or buying food and groceries in a rush. May we be empowered to answer those who have yet to know Jesus with speech that is full of grace and seasoned with salt, always setting our hearts and minds on the coming of our Lord Jesus, our Savior. As the prospect of disease and death stares at us, we ask that you will teach us to number our days aright so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Because you remind us of the brevity and the fragility and the uncertainty of our lives. So we thank you for the lives that have been saved during the, these dangerous times, how you have answered our prayers for those who are unwell, now brought to recovery. And for those whose loved ones passed away during these times, we pray for your comfort to be upon them, that the promise of the resurrection for those in Christ will cut short their griefs. We ask that you will bless the work of our government our medical workers, our cleaners, and other essential services workers, that you will grant them whatever they need to serve you in serving others. Use this crisis, use this calamity, we pray, to cause all to turn to you and to you alone. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before I deliver the message, allow me to read the rest of the passage from which the sermon will be taken. Matthew chapter 14, verses 23 to 33. Matthew 14, verses 23 to 33. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. 
But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Verse 28, Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and, beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. May God bless the reading of his word. The sermon title for this day is The King for Such a Time. The King for Such a Time. Now, please admit it that most of you wake up each day looking for updates to the coronavirus situation around the world. I know of one whose computer screen is always showing the Worldometer. Worldometer, a real-time update of the number of COVID-19 cases. This question probably crossed your mind. Is there a better place to be? at this time when the whole world is stricken by an unprecedented pandemic. Which country would one ideally be in such a time as this? Is it New Zealand, which just declared victory against the coronavirus and people started rushing to KFC and McDonald's? Is it Bhutan, where there are only seven COVID-19 cases? Or is it the land of Captain Ree Jong-hyuk, where COVID cases remain at zero, or so they reported? And now that the news has showcased how leaders around the world handled the crisis, which leader would you look to at a time like this? Is it a leader who wondered if Lysol can be injected into the body? or the leader who has the magic cup. Each time he drinks from the cup, he speaks another language and calmly encourages the nation to stay at home. I will choose the one with the magic, with the magic cup. Is there really a better place to be? Well, there is. It's, it's up there at the International Space Station where cosmonauts and astronauts are spared from the pandemic that we have here on Earth. But seriously, is the best place to be really out of this world? Now we began a series of studies from the Gospel of Matthew with Jesus teaching about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is not a kingdom that is out of this world, but it's a kingdom that is not of this world. It's a kingdom that is in our midst, though yet to come to its fullness. It's a kingdom where Jesus is king, whose rule and reign is unlike that of the rulers of the world. Jesus is the king that we all need all the more for such a time as this. 
So today's account picks up from the post-party celebration at King Herod's palace. There was dinner, there was drinking, there was dancing, and for desserts, there was death served on a large dish. At the request of the queen Herodias, for which the king could not back out, Herod had John the Baptist beheaded. And if that was not gruesome enough, his head was brought out on a platter for all to see. Jesus was told of what happened, the murder of a great prophet, of him who was the friend of the bridegroom, the Elijah who was to come. Jesus was told of the evil done to his very own cousin. How could the Lord have reacted upon hearing the news from the disciples of John? Well, Jesus, I think, could have gone to the grave of the Baptist, perform a miracle, and bring him back to life. Did he not, after all, bring back to life the dead daughter of the synagogue ruler? Well, Jesus could have easily reversed the evil done to John. And the Baptist could return to Herod and point out his wrongful marriage all over again. That would have spooked the king. Jesus could have reversed the evil done to his cousin. Or the Lord could have made Herod pay for his evil deed. He could have summoned legions of angels, for that is what the Lord told Peter when the disciple tried single-handedly to defend him. Put down your sword, he says. Repeat that. Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? Matthew chapter 26, verse 53. See, a legion in the Roman army is made up of 3,000 to 6,000 soldiers. And Jesus could have summoned 72,000 angels and rained unforgettable disaster on Herod's household. Jesus could have made Herod pay for his wickedness. But what did Jesus do after hearing the news of John's death? Verse 13, we are told that he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Jesus, this king, retreated to a quiet place to be alone by himself. Jesus is a not-of-this-world king, isn't he? He is a different kind of king. He is not the equalizer. He is not the avenger. He is not the king who would avenge the death of his cousin. He is not the king who would punish his enemies or those who oppose his kingship. He is not the king who would reverse the wrong done and make evil pay. No, not yet. Why? Because such is the kingdom of heaven. Recall in Matthew chapter 13 where Jesus likened the ecology of his kingdom 
to a field of wheat growing alongside weeds. Matthew 13, 24 to 30. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, the we then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered. Because while you are pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at that time, I will tell the harvesters, first, collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Such is the kingdom of Jesus. He is the king whose kingdom will have wheat and weeds growing together, meaning that the sons of the kingdom and the sons of the evil one will coexist. In this kingdom, both the righteous and the wicked are recipients of God's benevolent love, even though the wicked may not know it. Scripture says that both the righteous and wicked receive God's sunshine and rain. Jesus is a benevolent and merciful king to the wicked. He is unlike Herod, unlike King Herod, who beheaded his enemy for preaching against his sin. Jesus is unlike the kings of the world who would wipe out their enemies and silence their opponents. This king is not on course to destroy the wicked systematically. No, this king, rather, will allow for now the righteous and the wicked to coexist. He will let them breathe in his air, bask under his sunshine, drink up from his waters until, until harvest time, until the fishing boats return to dock until the fishermen haul in their catch, sorting out the good fish by throwing the bad away. Such is his kingdom, Jesus tells his disciples. The godly and the ungodly are like the fishes swimming in the sea until the end of the age, the day when the angels will come and separate Matthew chapter 13, verses 49 to 50, the wicked from the righteous and throw the wicked into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But for now, harvest day is not happening. Soon, but not today. The day of sorting will happen, just not today. Jesus went on to a solitary place because the day of settlement is not happening yet. And this tells us that Jesus' mission 
is not that of rescuing people from the evil world. It is not to pluck out the righteous from the wicked world. The mission of this king instead is to rescue people from sin. The Lord would pray for his disciples, saying, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. My prayer is that you sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus tells his father. This King Jesus, his mission is not to evacuate his disciples from an unsafe world. It's not to save them from the evil people, but to save them from the clutches of the evil one. His mission is to save people from the deceit, the lies, the lures of the evil one. His mission is to rescue us from sin. As of today, the 2nd of May, the world has over 3 million cases of COVID-19. More than 2,000, 200,000 rather, have died. We must indeed pray for the Lord's mercy to shorten the crisis. But all the more must we pray too that this God-ordained pandemic humble us all and draw many to repentance. Draw many to come before the King who rescues men and women from sin and unto salvation. We must pray that God will use this pandemic for his redemptive purposes. So there's a beautiful reflection that was passed to me. The title, Don't Waste This Epidemic. This was written in early March before the outbreak was declared a pandemic. And the author writes, If you do not believe that the epidemic is allowed by God, you will waste the epidemic. Everything happens with God's permission. He must have a higher purpose. If you rely on outside protection instead of seeking comfort from God, you will waste this epidemic. Psalm 20, verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. If you refuse to consider death, you will waste this epidemic. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2 says, Death is the end of every man, and the living will take it to heart. If you only want the epidemic to stop as soon as possible so you can go back to live a normal life without seeking to understand God's will and cherish Christ more, you will waste the epidemic. Because the evil one wants to use the epidemic to undermine your love for Christ. But God wants you to deepen your love for the Savior. If you spend too much time reading information about the epidemic but do not have enough time to read the Word of God, you will waste the epidemic. And last, if you treat your sin 
as casually as before, you will waste this epidemic. Because this epidemic is a wake-up call sent by God. This king, Jesus, his mission is not to grant you the good life, but rather the God life. His mission is not to extract you out, to evacuate you from a messy world, but his goal is to save you. It's to save you from sin and to make you holy. Truly, we need such a king in a time like this. Jesus did not respond to John's death like other kings would have. He went to a solitary place because his mission is to save you and I from sin. Moving on, we read that immediately upon Jesus' arrival, large crowds waited for him. They had traveled by foot and brought in their sick. And what did Jesus do? What he had always been doing with the sick that was brought to him. Jesus had compassion on the helpless and harassed crowd. He healed their sick. This account, however, seems to uh, understate Jesus' miraculous healing compared with what he was about to do. See, earlier accounts provided not a few examples of Jesus' healing miracles. He healed those suffering severe pain, those who had seizures, the demon-possessed, the paralyzed, the lepers. But here, Jesus is about to perform a miracle that he's never done before. After the sun, uh, as, as the sun was about to set, the disciples asked Jesus to send the crowds away. Reason being, the place they were in, they were in, is a remote area, far from the villages, and these people needed to buy their own food. And so they asked the Lord, send them away so that they could buy food. But the Lord disagreed. The Lord said, you give them something to eat. They need not go away, he tells the disciples. Now, is Jesus hinting the disciples, hinting at the disciples to go buy food for the crowd? Whatever it is, Jesus was setting up the occasion for the disciples to see their limitations, their helplessness, and their need to depend on the Lord. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they told Jesus. Jesus took them, and having instructed the people to sit down on the grass, he took the loaves and fish. He looked up to heaven, gave thanks, and broke the loaves. He then gave them to the disciples, who in turn gave them to the people. Now, one should suppose that food would be rationed, say, one little piece for, per family. But verse 20 tells us that they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls 
of leftovers. And Matthew ends the account by telling us that the number of people fed full, the number of people fed full and satisfied was 5,000. Not counting the women and children. You know, McDonald's has a sign below its logo. It says, billions and billions served. Wow. Wow. It's a little surprise because that's the number over many decades. Since 1955, the year McDonald's was founded. If Jesus had a signpost, it would write over 5,000 fed in an instant. In an instant. Now, if you are a circuit baker, that means if you're baking a lot during this circuit breaker period, you know the length of time it takes to make bread, the time it takes to knead the dough, to wait for the dough to rise. Well, I did some math myself and figured out that if I want my family to wake up to freshly baked bread, I have to start mixing flour at 4 a.m. And then I'd only produce 20 pieces of buns. Jesus made bread for over 5,000 people in an instant. What's the significance of this miracle here, my friends? What's the significance? See, our problem is that most of us read this miracle with some, some distance. What do I mean? Well, when we open our refrigerators, we are all well stocked. In fact, some of you even bought chest freezers. I know, because I see folded boxes of chest freezers near the rubbish bins. So some of us are more than well stocked. No wonder many of us do not get this miracle because our tummies are always full. But I know what it is to be hungry and not have food. I remember as a kid having only rice for dinner without sides. And I would sprinkle some sugar on it, if there's sugar left. I know what it is to be hungry in school to ask my friend if I can have a bite of whatever he's having. I know what it is to uh, drink from half-emptied bottles of soft drink left by others. What's the significance of this miracle? Jesus is a compassionate king who provides for the hungry. To contrast him from King Herod, who fed only his honored guests, this King Jesus fed the helpless, he fed the harassed, and when he performed the miracle of multiplying bread, he authenticated himself as a man of God in the likes of the prophets Elijah and Elisha, both who miraculously multiplied flour and oil out of compassion for helpless widows, particularly Elisha, who fed a hundred with twenty loaves of bread and had leftovers. 
Jesus is the king who provides. He is the man of God who has compassion. And Jesus would do this miraculous feeding of the crowds again in Matthew chapter 15 because he is the compassionate king, the man of God, who did not want to send the crowds away hungry and collapse along the way. And when Jesus multiplied food again, his aim was also to strengthen the faith of the disciples in him. It was, if you were to read Matthew chapter 15, it was a repeat experience. The disciples gave Jesus the bread they have. Jesus took them, gave thanks, broke the loaves, gave them back to the disciples to distribute. The crowds ate. They were satisfied. There was no rationing. And there were lots of leftover. It was deja vu. And the aim of the repeat experience was to boost the faith of the disciples. That is why when the disciples fussed over forgetting to bring bread later on, Jesus reminded them of the feeding miracles. Do you not understand? Do you not remember the five loaves and the amount of leftovers? Do you not remember the seven loaves and how many were gathered? Oh, you of little faith, Jesus would tell them. You know, it's not the first time that Jesus chided the disciples, oh, you of little faith. In Matthew chapter 6, he told them not to worry about their lives, what to eat, what to drink, what to wear. He pointed them to look at the birds. So Jesus says in Matthew 6, 26, Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Jesus told them to look at the birds, and then Jesus pointed them to the lilies of the field. Matthew chapter 6, verse 28. And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? O oh, you of little faith. The compassionate king tells you and I not to worry. He's fed the hungry, thousands of them, and more than once. Remember them, he told the disciples, and do not be those of little faith. The news do tell us that it is looking bleak. Oil is now cheap, there is no demand, and the storage for oil is running out. France has just entered recession. The U.S., Germany, Hong Kong, Singapore, they all warn of a recession 
in the second quarter. The Monetary Authority of Singapore expects job losses, wage cuts, because there is significant uncertainty. Companies announce no pay leaves because of the economic downturn. Such news can make one worried, including those whose freezers are well stocked now, which is why we need Jesus all the more for such a time as this. What does the compassionate king tell us? He will feed us. He will provide for his children. Have you noticed that a lot more birds are singing and chirping lately? See, while we all stayed home, they were all coming out. And their carefree singing should remind us of what King Jesus tells his disciples. Your heavenly Father feeds them. How much more will he provide for you, O you of little faith? The compassionate king promised to provide for his children even at such a time as this. And so do not be once with little faith. Moving on, the next account bears many similarities to this one we just read. Jesus goes to a solitary place. He sets up an occasion to boost the disciples' faith. He performs a miracle he's never done before, and it's deja vu. Again, show you what I mean. Verse 22 begins telling us that Jesus made the disciples get into the boat to go to the other side while he went to the mountainside to pray. Jesus prayed the whole night. And here is a king who is unlike the kings of the world. Jesus had a lengthy communion with the Father through prayer. And being consistent with his teachings, he prayed not in public, but in private. At night, alone, he prayed until the wee hours of the morning. And by that time, the disciples would have long reached land, and by that time, sound asleep. But not so. Verse 24 tells us that their boat was buffeted by waves with winds, with the winds blowing against this, or rather against it. Now, was this a familiar scene? It is. It is a repeat experience of an earlier account. Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 to 27. Let me read that. Then he got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. Without warning, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was leaping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us. We are going, we're going to drown. He replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, 
and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Well, this account happened early on. And so what we have here is not the first time the disciples are meeting rough waters. This, my friends, is a repeat experience. It's same-same, but different. This time around, Jesus was not physically with them because the sequel should always be better. Matthew chapter 14, verses 25 to 26, during the fourth watch of the night, that is the wee hours of the morning, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. I told you, the sequel has got to be better. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. Now, the gospel writer, Matthew, does not explain the apparition the disciples saw. Either the disciples could just be tired the whole night, trying to row to shore. You know, when one is tired, one can hear voices and see things. See, in my case, when I catch a few winks at 3 a.m. in the morning in between writing my sermon, sometimes I hear voices. And no, it's not the voice of God. Pilots, we were told, can report seeing aliens and UFOs when they are tired. Either the disciples were tired and saw things, or they suspect the huge waves were the works of an evil spirit. I think the latter is more possible. Because in their first frightful experience with rough waters, Jesus took away their fears when the Lord rebuked the winds and the waves. You see, Jesus did not just command the winds and the waves to stop. He rebuked them. It's the same word that is used to describe when Jesus rebuked demons. The winds and the waves were used by evil forces to hamper, to hinder Jesus' ministry because at that time he was headed to rescue a man from demon possession. This time around, we do not see Jesus rebuking the winds and the waves. I think because Jesus' handprints were all over them. He's behind all this. It is I, Jesus says. It's not the evil spirits. It is I. Now, Peter didn't believe it and wanted verification. He demanded an authenticity check. He says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Good job, Peter. You had to ask for it instead of, instead of taking the Lord for his word. But the gracious Lord acceded to Peter's request. Come. Peter did walk on water, but not for long. For when he saw the wind, fear overcame his faith. And he began to sink. 
Lord, save me. You know, if I were the Lord Jesus, I would let Peter drown a bit and then pull him up like a Baywatch lifeguard. But Jesus' goal is not to make his child more afraid. His goal is for his children to move away from fear and into faith. And so Jesus reached out his hand to catch the sinking poor fellow and pay attention to what the Lord said. You of little faith, why did you doubt? And they both climbed on to the boat. And the wind died down. There's no record of Jesus rebuking the wind and the waves. The disciples worshiped Jesus, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. See, friends, this is a repeat experience. Same, same, but different. Jesus set up an occasion to strengthen the disciples' faith. He subjected them to the same conditions with a slight change of variables so as to boost their faith in Him because they were still disciples of little faith. Oh, you of little faith, Jesus tells Peter. The result of this repeat experience might have been embarrassing for Peter, but the lessons learned were all worth it. Jesus said, It is I. I am sovereign. It is I. Literally, in Greek, I am. And one could recall the Lord appearing to Moses, saying to him, I am who I am. And that is why the disciples worship Jesus, affirming now that he is the Son of God. Jesus is the powerful king over forces of nature who will use these at his disposal again and again to strengthen our faith in him. So some of you may know my story when our son was born, he was born with a rare syndrome. He had an omphalocele, where the uh, intestines, the liver, they all stuck out, outside of his belly. And he had to be operated on day two of his life. Dan was born with a large tongue, so he could not close his mouth and would choke in his sleep. He had partial cleft palate and so could not suck milk, and he would have a series of surgeries to correct the defects. The first few years of his life was a lesson of faith for Anna and me. Dan is a lot better now. His last emergency surgery was about five years ago, and so far, nothing's come up yet. Then a year ago, our girl, who was born normal unlike Dan, 
she was diagnosed with anxiety disorder. See, for the past many years, we never had to worry about Ashley with the worries we had for Dan. But presently, the Lord's ordained illness, we must see as an occasion that he has set up to boost our faith in him. It's deja vu. It's a repeat experience. It's same, same, but different. And that is what God does to us, doesn't he? He sets up new challenges to boost, like a booster vaccine, to boost our faith in him. When we respond in fear and in hopelessness, he whispers to us, or he slaps gently on our wrists, saying, Oh, you of little faith, don't you understand? Don't you remember? He is the king, the powerful king over forces of nature. And he acts to show us who he is. Now, we do not know how this current pandemic will unfold, but we can rest assured that Jesus is sovereign. He is the king who is in full control. He knows what he is doing. And what he does is always for the good of his people. Because his mission is to save us from sin so that we may run to him. And his promised to provide for our needs no matter what happens. Because we have a king for such a time as this. May we move away from fear to faith. May we level up from little faith to strengthen faith. Because Jesus is the king for such a time as this. Amen.